You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. We had a great time at camp. I was really, really glad I got to go, and um, God did some really, really great things. And uh, you also saw on there what happens when people start chanting my name. Just got sucked up there, and so Chip wound up getting sprayed in the face. Um, But I want to also say to you this morning, um, specifically to some of you young adults, young adults, hear me. There are not many people in a better place in life to lead and to minister to this next generation than you. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have little ones, um, you have not, not too long ago, just walked where these students are. And um, some of you could be a real, real um, life changer investing in their lives. But here's the other side of this. See, these teenagers have parents who are walking where you're going to walk not too long from now and have just walked where you are walking and no one better to invest in your life. And so I want to encourage you this morning to pray about uh, is maybe God calling you to invest in these students. God will change your life in doing it. So Uh, Before we dive in this morning, I also want to let you know that if you use um, the Bible app, YouVersion, uh, Reed introduced this to you last week. Uh, If you open up the Bible app and you look in the bottom right corner, there's a little button that says more. Um, You can click on that and then events are one of those tabs. Uh, If you click on events, you will see the brook and you can pop that right open and it brings this sermon up, all the notes and things in the scriptures live. So, but if you're a old school pen and, per, pen and pencil paper person, there are way too many P's there. If you're old school like me, you can keep taking notes. Um, so uh, let's dive in. Uh, we have been in Paul's letter to the Colossians now for over a month. And up to this point, chapters one and two, Um, Paul has been preaching and diving deeply into theology and doctrine. He's been talking a lot about God and a lot about Christ and a lot about some fundamental things that we need to understand. Um, Warren Wiersbe, theologian, professor, he has a commentary on Colossians and in it, he says Colossians 1 and 2 are all about declaring and defending the truth. That's what Paul's doing with the Colossians. And that's what happens with us when we read that part. Well, so now you get to chapter 3, and Paul moves into this practical application, if you will, of how do we demonstrate and live out these truths. Um, I want you to notice something in the letter to the Colossians that is what I'll call a Pauline pattern. Um, If you look at any of Paul's letters, there are some things that are always present and characteristic. Uh, It's important to notice this. Um, One of the first things that you will always find in any letter that Paul has written is Christology. It is an explanation or an understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, which of course leads into theology of the, the study or the quest of knowing God more. But Paul doesn't ever stop there. He always hooks these other two things in. And again, these are kind of big churchy words, 
but I'm going to use them anyways because it's what he does. Paul always begins to talk about ecclesiology and missiology. And here's what I mean. After Paul talks about who Jesus is and how we know God through Christ, he always moves into talking about what does this mean in terms of the church and how we as the church move and live and come together but also missiology in that what that looks like in our individual lives as Christ followers. These things are always found in any letter that Paul writes. Well, we're also going to see this morning that Paul hits on something that's not just characteristic of Paul, but of all the New Testament letters, whether Peter's writing it or James or John or whoever. There's a pattern that we find throughout all of the New Testament letters that This truth is always declared. Knowing Christ leads to living for Christ. Knowing Christ leads to living for Christ. There's not something being said here that Jesus himself didn't say. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells the disciples, if you abide in me and I'm in you, if, if you're in me and I am in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus has already told them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Jesus is saying, the more that you know me, the more the evidence will be there through your life. Knowing Christ leads to living for Christ. So friends, if you and I, if we are Jesus followers, then this means our ethics, our morality ought to reflect Christ. This means that you and I, we need to be asking questions um, during our day, during our week. Questions like, okay, well, how did Jesus think? Uh, What did Jesus say? How did he act? How did he live? How did he speak? How did Jesus spend his time? How did Jesus treat other people? Now, we need to also recognize that in Paul's day, there was very, very little being said about what we would call personal morality. For instance, when Christianity was beginning to sweep through uh, the world, there were already and were still a whole lot of different pagan religions where you could find people going to a temple, if you will, to make offerings, sacrifices, to worship pagan gods and idols, but then would walk right back out and their lives would look no differently. They would still keep living in sin. And so Christianity brought something very, very new and distinctly different to the world. Changed lives. Christianity brought something that had not been seen before, that worshiping this God all of a sudden brings a changed life about. Now that said, let's not pretend that there weren't and that there still aren't many who not only claim to know Christ, but will even try and defend the truth to no end and then at the same time walk back out and the very life that they live denies the truth that they're trying to defend. Paul and anyone else writing in the scriptures would say that's not just hypocrisy, that's unacceptable. That's intolerable. That's not what following Christ is about. Um, Before we just jump right into Colossians 3, let's return for a moment to 
the fundamental theological foundation that Paul's laid that we really kind of need to move on. And in doing that, I want to just bring up two words that we've touched on over the last five or six weeks. One of them is substitution. The theological understanding that Jesus Christ died for us. Peter said that Jesus bore in his body um, our sin. He bore our shame. Jesus Christ died for us. He atoned for our sins. But then a few weeks ago, we began talking about identification. Yes, Jesus died for me, but now I begin to understand that spiritually, I died with him. We died with him. We identify with the death of Christ and the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but also as a result, the new life in Christ. And so now spiritually, I understand that because I died with Christ, I can also find new life through faith in him. So Christ not only died for sin, paying the penalty, Christ died unto sin. He broke its power. So let's phrase it this way. In Christ, the penalty of sin is paid and the power of sin is broken. That's a truth that you and I need to dwell on every single day. Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, he paid the penalty, but he also broke the power. And if that's the case in my life and in your life, how then should we live? How should our lives look different? Let's take a look. Look with me this morning in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's say that you came to me and you said, Hey, Brian, I'm going out of town and I have treasure. Can you watch my treasure? I would say, sure, because I'm that kind of a friend. So you'd leave me uh, with your treasure and you came back a week later and you said, hey, Brian, I'm back. I had a great time. I'm here to pick up my treasure. And I said, oh, uh, I buried it in a jar under a tree. You would probably fairly quickly want to know what jar, what tree, and where is your shovel? Let's go. I need to know where my treasure is. If my identity is in Christ, Paul says, that my life, right here in verse 3, that my life is hidden with Christ. I want to know where Christ is. He's got my life. It's hidden with him. Where is he? Well, Paul has already told us. He says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is echoing here in Colossians what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. That Christ, right this moment, is interceding for you and me at the right hand of the Father. He is seated at the right hand of God. Why is this so important? Hubert Humphrey is a former U.S. senator 
And one time he was leading a Senate Judiciary Committee. If I'm being honest with you, I have absolutely no idea what it was about. But I do know something that Humphrey said during this when he was being pressed about how he was going to vote. He made this statement. He said, how you stand depends on where you sit. Now, Humphrey was talking politics. He was basically saying how you vote, it really depends on what side of the aisle you sit on, what party you're here with. That's going to determine how you vote. Yes, he was speaking politically, but what Humphrey said has incredible spiritual implications. How you stand depends on where you sit. If Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and my life is hidden in Christ, and I begin to understand that spiritually I am now seated at the right hand of the Father, I should walk and live like it. If I am now, my identity is in Christ and I am spiritually seated at the right hand of the Father, then where I'm seated ought to impact how I stand and how I walk and how I live. This means that my entire worldview is going to change. I'm going to begin to look at life differently. I'm going to begin to look at everything through the lens of the eternal. That's how God sees things. But how do I do this? How do we accomplish this? Again, thank you, Lord. Paul has told us. Look at verse 2. Paul says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. I think that we read something like that and we go, yeah, okay, so like how do I do this? And and we get all perplexed and in a wad about it spiritually, but let's not give each other too much rope here, okay? We know how to set our minds on something, don't we? We do. You get determined that you need that new whatever it is, your mind is set. I mean, if we get into our head that we want to do something, that we need to get something, nothing slows us down or stops us. Paul is saying here, focus your attention on the eternal. Turn away from the distractions of the temporary. Look with me for a moment in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is kind of close to the middle of your Bible. It's a really, really, really long chapter. But in Colossians 1.19, look with me at verse 9. It begins with this question. How can a young man, how can a young person keep his way pure? How can, how can a, a young person walk in purity? By guarding it, by guarding your way, According to the word. How can a young person walk in purity? How can anyone keep their life in purity? Well, by guarding and living your life according to the word. He goes on, with my whole heart, I seek you, God. Let me not wander from your commandments. And now listen to this. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
How do we set our minds? How do we focus our attention on the eternal? Well, Paul says, and the writer of Psalm 119 says, we are to hide God's word. There's been a lot of debate over the years about, you know, is memorizing scripture, is that actually a good thing, a biblical thing? Like if we're just stuffing it into our head, well, let me say this. I've kind of come to a conclusion that if your motive is to know the Lord and to walk in him, I don't really care how you're memorizing scripture. I'm having a lot of trouble finding any detrimental effects to it. You put God's word in your mind and it will translate to your heart. Hide God's word in your heart. Set your mind, focus your attention, guard your heart, seek the things that are above. Here in Colossians chapter 3, the first verses, Paul is saying, seek heaven. Now, D.L. Moody once famously said, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I get that and I'm with Moody. But Paul is saying here, we've got to set our mind on Christ. Seek heaven. Seek the things that are above. But Paul doesn't stop there because he says that we also have to slay sin. Slay sin. Look at verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. The more we know Christ, the more we are renewed and we live for Christ. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here in the kingdom of God, there is no more Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and is in all. I hope it's not lost on you. Paul says here, put to death. This is an incredibly violent metaphor being used here. Paul doesn't say, you slap that sin silly and tell it where to go. Or stop doing those things. No, Paul says that we have to slay, conquer, and put to death the sin lurking within us. And in this verse here, Paul doesn't say that that sin is out there hiding in the bushes somewhere waiting to pounce on us. Where is it? Put to death what is earthly in you. Ouch. Paul's kind of getting personal here. He very much is getting personal. I had a friend that this week posted this and I was like, hey, how timely. Thank you very much. He posted this image that just said this. Sin is not a pet to tame. It is a beast to slay. 
Paul says, put it to death. A few weeks ago, some of us were out here in the lobby during the week talking about something. I don't even know what. And um, I looked out the door and I was like, that's the weirdest looking bird I've ever seen walking by the door. And I'm a bird nerd, which my family can tell you. Um, And so I'm like, I got to see what this is. And so I walk over close to the door and realize, oh, not a bird. It's a snake. And it had just had its head up, just kind of wandering around. And so I'm like, hey, it's a snake. And it's like a five foot long, pretty thick rat snake. And so everybody kind of runs over there and we're looking out the door. And I'm like, you know, get me a broom or something with a long stick. See, I actually instantly had in my mind like a relocation plan for the snake. Um, Some of you have moved before and your company's supplied you with a relocation package. I was offering that to the snake. Uh, I was going to take it out in the field somewhere because my thinking is that guy eats mice. And I hate mice. And we have a lot more problems with mice around here than we do with snakes. So relocation. Well, no one else around here, I don't think, was thinking like me, especially not the ladies because Nancy was saying, why didn't you chop its head off? Well, it got away from us and got in the bushes. And, you know, they were pretty adamant. You got to kill the thing, chop its head off, because if you don't, see Sue Ann's out there nodding right now, it will come back. Two hours later, I'm in my office with the door closed, and I hear Chip running down the hall. Y'all got to come check this out. Guess who was back? That snake was on the porch out here, wrapping itself up the post and already had its head in a bird's nest. And I'm talking like D-Day. These birds were bombing this snake and we're all watching this go down. Um, You just have to kill it and chop its head off. Friends, God did just that fully and completely at the cross. He set the enemy's death sentence. He said he was going to do it from the very beginning. If you go back to Genesis 3, God told the enemy, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan is already aware of his fate. But here's the thing. His head is not yet completely chopped off and you and I still deal with and live with the effects of sin. The battle is still raging and it will rage until Christ returns. But we are in that battle. And here's the thing. This cannot be done. We cannot engage this battle in our own power and our own strength. It is only through the power of the cross. Period. Jesus, when he called his disciples, he said to them, what? Hey, come and check out what I'm going to do. Nope. Come and learn a few good things. Nope. He said, come follow me. Well, 12 chapters later, those very same disciples who are still following him, he turns to them and he says, I want you to understand something. If you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself take up your cross and follow me. What Jesus was saying to the disciples is, you're not going to understand what I'm about to say, but in just a little while, 
you will. If you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and you've got to identify with my cross and follow me. On a daily basis, I can only find victory over sin by resting in the knowledge that Jesus has already defeated it on the cross. Friends, I don't defeat sin and neither do you. Jesus already did. The Spirit of God and the Word of God reveal this truth to us. Go back into Colossians 3, look at verse 3. Paul says, For you have died. Anybody in this room died? Nope. No one's dead either. So what's Paul talking about? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Turn over to Romans 6, 6 with me for a minute. I'm pretty sure if I went back and looked correctly, we've looked at Romans 6, 6. This will be the third time now while in the letter to the Colossians. That tells you Paul is saying some things over and over to different people. But listen to what, how Paul says this in Romans 6, 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. There it is. The identification of Christ has died for me. I have died with him. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The only way that you and I have victory over sin is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Miles Stanford in his book, The Complete Green Letters, says that the reason that God has done it this way, he says the reason is there's no other way for self to be denied that God has done the work in this way. Our identification with Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection, it's done. What did Jesus say on the cross right before he died? It's finished. It's now ours to believe. It's about faith. It's about believing that what Christ accomplished for us was enough. In Stanford's book, he quotes a guy named Watt. And I want you to hear and read what Watt said. The flesh will only yield to the cross. Not all the resolutions you make at a conference or at camp, not to any self-effort, not to any attempted self-crucifixion, only to co-crucifixion, crucified together with Christ. That's the whole heart of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. It's not by putting yourself to death, but by taking through faith and surrender your place of union with Christ in his death. That is the blessed barrier of safety between you and all the attractions of the flesh, and that makes the way open to do the will of God. Friends, at some point in our life as Christ followers, we've got to begin asking ourselves the question, do I want my flesh to be gratified or my soul to be satisfied? Because there are going to be a hundred, a thousand, maybe a million things in your life and in your day and in my life and in my day 
that are going to tempt me and seduce me and lure me into believing that they will gratify my flesh. And you know what? They will. For about that long. And then I'm always back to wanting more because even though they gratify me, they don't satisfy me. There is only one thing that will ever satisfy your soul and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Period. And and Paul is saying the only way for that to happen is to rest in him and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Going back to what? It's not by putting yourself to death. Nowhere does the Bible submit some kind of self-mortification process for us. That we should physically or mentally beat ourselves up. It's not by putting yourself to death, but by taking through faith and surrender your place of union with Christ in his death. Well, friends, what does this look like? I mean, can we really talk about this in like everyday practical terms? I I think that we can. And I think that sometimes we fail to do so. What does this look like on a daily basis? If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and, and I want to do what Paul is submitting here and I want to set my mind on things above and I want to put these things to death so that Christ is glorified in me and through me. Well, friends, I think that it begins with what I will just call a faith prayer, which is there any other kind? Um, I don't think so. But I think that you and I, however we have to accomplish it, we've got to get before God and we've got to be able to say, Lord, I want to know you. I want you to change the way I think. I want you to change the way I look at the world. I want you to change the way I speak. I want you to change what I am affectionate for. I want you to change the steps that I take. Lord, transform all of those things through the power of your word and through the power of your spirit. And then I've got to get into the Word. And, and let's just say that maybe you've decided, you know what, I'm going to read 1 John this week. And it's Wednesday, so you've made it to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And you've said, Lord, open my eyes, open my heart, transform me today. John says, and now, little children... That's us. Abide in him. And maybe you'd read that and you would go, now wait a minute, Pastor Brian the other day said something about Jesus saying that in John 15, uh, that if you're in me, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. Well, now here John, who was standing there when Jesus said it, is saying the same thing. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
what I'm hearing John say is cling to Jesus because you know what? He's coming back. He's going to return. And if Christ returns and I am clinging to him already, I have nothing to fear. I have no shame. My life is hidden in him. He goes on, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Lord, I pray that my steps and my life today reflect your righteousness. And John, knowing that many of us might be tempted to think that we need to live this way and do these things so that God will love us, rather than understanding that we live this way because he has first loved us. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father, help me today to walk in purity, to help me to walk in hope, to help me to walk in righteousness through the power of your spirit and your word and your cross. And that faith prayer probably ought to always lead us to the gospel prayer. Reed brought this up last week. The first person that you and I need to preach the gospel to every single day is ourselves. Of the reminder of, Lord, I know that there is nothing that I can do to make you love me any more than you already do. God, there's nothing I have ever done or will ever do that will make you love me less. Your cross, your resurrection are enough. You have fully, wholly, completely paid the debt of my sin and you have broken the power of sin over my life. May I live that way. But folks, I think that that may be where we stop. But here's where we have to keep moving forward the faith prayer, the gospel prayer has somehow got to lead us to confessional prayer. Because you see, when I pray, Lord, help me to walk in righteousness and help me to walk in purity and help me to walk in faith. And then halfway through my day, when I'm at work or uh, I'm at the gym or wherever I am and my eyes begin to lust after the flesh, In that moment, I have got to begin to come before God and confess that sin. Lord, lead me away from this. And remember, where temptation lies, God is always leading a way of escape. Men, we have got to somehow take out an axe and with a hatchet bring down upon anything that wants to lead our minds away from purity. Period. Because see, I think that we want the faith prayer and the gospel prayer, but we don't want 
the confessional prayer. The confessional prayer is what's going to lead to the transformational work. And again, make no mistake, you and I are not defeating sin. It's already been defeated. We are walking in the victory that Christ has already purchased. But you see, maybe you're dealing with lust of the eyes. Let me put it in English for you. You just want lots of stuff. You may have to make the very transformational decision that you just don't need to go to Best Buy. I had 30 minutes at lunch, so I I just thought, you know, I'll just go kill some time at Best Buy. No, you won't. You'll go in there and find that thing and love it and bring it to the counter. And because you're drunk mentally at this moment, you're going to buy it and it's going to be in your trunk. But by the time you get home, there's going to be something in you going, why'd I do that? I feel dirty. It's because you didn't listen to the spirit telling you in the first place, don't go in there. Alcoholics don't need to go into liquor stores. If you're dealing with that struggle, don't go in those places. If you and I are dealing with lust of the flesh, there's probably magazines and TV channels and all kinds of things we just don't need to get near. And that doesn't sound or feel very spiritual, but you know what? That decision of discipline in your life is the most spiritual thing that you can do. Because you have said, Lord Jesus, I want to walk in righteousness and purity that my life would reflect yours. And the Holy Spirit is going to say to you, awesome, here's what you got to do. It's got to lead us to the transformational work that God wants to do in and through our lives. Friends, Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, seek heaven, but slay sin. Know Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.